Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our host, Steve Butler. On today's program, our series entitled, The Second Coming Versus the Rapture, as he opens God's Word to study the difference between the rapture and the second coming. It's time to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. If you've been following along with us in this series on the difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ, you know that we have a handout uh, that lists um, all the points that we're making during this series to um, uh, prayerfully make the, the case for a very clear difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ to the earth. And that um, handout is available for you at the radio station, whcbradio.org, who has graciously agreed to post that for you so that you can follow along. You can find it at Exploring Bible Prophecy at that website. And we are moving through uh, the various points here, and we're now down to point number four. And we have uh, finished up with the rapture aspect of the foreverness of the rapture that when we see Jesus Christ, we will never come back in our earthly bodies, that we will be in our glorified immortal bodies living forever with the forever Christ, uh, wherever he is. So for a period of time following the rapture of the church, we know that we go to heaven. We know that we spend at least seven years with him, and that we then come back with him as his wife, uh, we've covered that in Revelation 19 and other programs. That's the glorious picture of the wife coming back and presented to the world uh, with with the groom, with the husband, Jesus Christ, and he comes back to the earth. And uh, as we followed along here in point number four about the fact that Jesus comes back and stands on the earth, and we know exactly where he stands on the earth because uh, Acts chapter 1 we're told that when he lifted off the earth at the end of his ministry, a uh, picture of the rapture that happened at the end of his ministry in approximately 32 A.D., uh, the apostles and we, therefore, were told in the book of Acts that Jesus would come back in exactly the same way he left. He would come back to the earth and stand on the Mount of Olives. And then... Uh, in last week's program, we talked about Zechariah being about 450, approximately 450, 475 years before um, the events in the book of Acts 1 when Jesus lifted off the earth. Uh, we're told in Zechariah 14, 1 through 4 that Jesus comes back and he comes back to judge the world and that he comes back and stands on the Mount of Olives. So the prophecy, the clear prophecy in Zechariah um, will come true again, as was uh, talked about in Acts, and will come true again when he comes back at his uh, second coming described in Zechariah. In John 5, if you're following along in our handout, uh, John 5, 22, we're told that all judgment was given to the Son by Father God. And then more specifically in verse 27, we're told that uh, as the Son of Man that Jesus would come back to judge the world, judge the world for its sinfulness and its wickedness. And then to uh, carry on here, we got into the book of Joel, which is one of the minor prophets. Um, and if you would, just for a quick review here as we continue on and pick up in Joel, uh, this uh, today in this program, 
we want to emphasize the point about what the judgment was all about. So if you're in your uh, Old Testament, about halfway through, you find Isaiah, then Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you get into the um, doorway, if you will, of the minor prophets with Hosea, and then right after Hosea, you find the wonderful short book of Joel. And in Joel chapter 2, we were talking about in verses 1 and 2 about the great and terrible, the day of the Lord is coming, and it described with clouds and darkness and gloom and so forth and so on. And that it, there in the end of verse 2 in chapter 2, there was never, there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. So this day of the Lord is describing the tribulation, and then we want to get into the judgment uh, that Jesus brings to the world at the tribulation at his second coming. And in, we go to Joel chapter 3 in our handout, Joel chapter 3, looking at the first two verses, and this is where we had finished up in our last program. So let me read these, these two verses again. For behold, in those days and at that time when I, and this is Jesus, I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. So as we uh, started to touch on in, in uh, last time's uh, program, there is so much uh, in here and, frankly, so much information that um, brings into dispute uh, quite a few doctrines and theologies that have been created over the over the years over the decades and frankly over the centuries about Israel and the playing down of the significance of Israel once they uh, brought about the crucifixion of Christ way back in 32 AD that the world basically tried to blame all of that on Israel and then it generated the questions after that of why in the world would a loving, gracious God want to uh, give great blessings to a nation that that killed his son? So they changed the, the meaning of scriptures and changed the definitions of words and so forth to make it look like uh, Israel had no future, Israel had no blessings to look forward to. But let's look at, uh, let's look at Joel chapter 3, and again, this was written prophetically approximately 800 years before Christ was born. So uh, definitely a key piece of prophecy and an ancient prophecy. But it says in verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance. Now you might take that and stop right there and you can you can infer a number of meanings for my people and my inheritance. You could say it's the church, for instance. (laughs) But God goes out of his way through the leading of the Holy Spirit and the writing of Joel here to make it clear his people and his inheritance is Israel and no one else. And then he tells the world what he's going to judge these nations that have come against his people at the end of the tribulation, what he's going to judge them on. He says, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. 
And we know that over, for sure, the last 2,000 years since the um, destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in 70 A.D. by the Roman armies, we know that the Israelites have been scattered. It's called the Diaspora, have been scattered to most of the nations of the earth, and that uh, the Gentiles in the form principally of the Arabs uh, have come in and have divided up the land. So that is what uh, is on God's mind through Jesus. So Jesus uh, is going to be the judge of all these nations for the fact that they've scattered his people and the fact that they have divided up his land. And one of the um, questions that uh, people bring up when they see this particular passage in Joel chapter 3 is, what is this valley of Jehoshaphat? And if you um, have a uh, Bible that has uh, footnotes either at the bottom or in the columns to the right or left, you find out that Jehoshaphat is Hebrew for God judges. In fact, it even clarifies it uh, when you stay in chapter 3 of Joel and go over to um, verses 14 and 16. And in verse 14, it says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then look down at verse 16. It says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. So he's talking about it's a valley of decision for the nations, but this valley of decision is actually close to um, Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, there are uh, a number of uh, biblical archaeologists and theologians that believe that the valley of Jehoshaphat is actually the Kidron Valley. And in looking at a map of uh, Jerusalem and a bigger map of the general uh, middle of Israel, you find that the Kidron Valley actually runs from the Dead Sea, which is south and east of Jerusalem, runs up through Jerusalem and actually is the divider between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. In other words, you have to cross the Kidron Valley to get from the Temple Mount uh, to the to the Mount of Olives. And it actually continues on up into the valley, which is what is called Armageddon. And, of course, uh, we know Armageddon is where the armies will gather together um, and make their plans ready before they march down to try and conquer Jerusalem at what's called the Battle of Armageddon. So we see that there is a judgment that's going to take place, and it's going to take place against all the nations that God brings. He brings all the nations against uh, Jerusalem in this case, and then he brings them all in to the valley of decision, to the valley of judgment, to the valley of Jehoshaphat, to be judged for their wickedness and for their um, uh, scattering Israel and for dividing up the land of Israel. But then a, uh, a wonderful sequence of events starts to take place following this, and this is the bringing of peace, the restitution of the, of the world, the restitution specifically and, and preeminently for Israel and for the setting up of the millennial kingdom with Jesus Christ sitting in bodily form, uh, immortal bodily form on his throne in Jerusalem 
And of course, uh, we know from passages that the church comes back and we will rule and reign with him during this period of time. But let's look at the specific passages that I have listed here in our handout on point number four on the right under the second coming aspect of it. And that first uh, passage is in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2. So if you're thumbing, thumbing through it and find the Psalms and the Proverbs and keep going, and right at the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2 out of the 66 chapters that it has, you find a, a wonderful description of what Jesus has set up following his judgment of the earth. And that judgment of the earth takes um, a number of days. Um, Daniel even specifies the number of days that it takes to judge and then to set up the kingdom um, following the uh, stepping on the Mount of Olives uh, by Jesus to uh, battle against the armies at Armageddon. But now we talk about the setting up of the kingdom. And let's let's read in Isaiah chapter 2, starting at uh, verse 1. The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, the head of the mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, us, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So what a, a wonderful picture that we have here of um, Jesus coming back and setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, which has now been raised up above all the mountains. So to use a geological term, there's a tectonic uh, shifting of the ground up around the Temple Mount, so that it is raised up in all the hills that are around it. Remember, there are seven hills uh, in Jerusalem, including Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount. So Mount Moriah, uh, at least, uh, doesn't tell us specifically how much land will be lifted up, and it will be uh, raised above all the other hills, so that as you come come to Jerusalem from any direction, north, south, east, or west, you will look up to the temple of God, to the throne of God, Jesus Christ sitting there. And then in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 2, we're told that he, Jesus, will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So we're talking about a, uh, a wonderful time with Jesus sitting on the throne, judging, judging the nations. There will be a, a time of absolute peace because we know from, from various scriptures uh, with the um, sheep and goat judgment of the Gentiles and the judgment of the Jews in Ezekiel uh, that there will be no uh, unrighteous people standing on the earth 
at the time that Jesus sets up his throne. Now, that doesn't always stay that, say, that stay that way during the millennial kingdom because we know that there's still sin because um, Isaiah tells us that there's still death in the millennial kingdom. But nevertheless, there will be a period right at the beginning where everybody will be uh, counted by Jesus as righteous. And uh, that's going to be a glorious time. So as we continue on uh, in uncovering um, aspects of this uh, time of peace in this millennial kingdom, let's stay in the book of Isaiah and let's go to chapter 56, chapter 56 of Isaiah. And you can find that again in our handout uh, at point number four on the right there. And let's see uh, uh, another description of this um, millennial kingdom with Christ sitting on the throne. And this is Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, and holds fast my covenant, even those, referred above, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. So we see this wonderful picture of not only Israel uh, being the center of all the nations at this point in time, but foreigners will join themselves to the Lord and come to Jerusalem with their offerings and their sacrifices uh, during the millennial kingdom. And we know, for instance, um, a little telltale sign that this is indeed the millennial kingdom is at the end of verse 7. It says, For my house will be called a house of prayer for who? For all the peoples. And we know that at no time when there was a um, temple in Jerusalem were all the peoples of the earth invited to come and pray there. And, of course, we know today there is no temple in Jerusalem. So this will be a time when God is in the temple in the form of Jesus Christ and that all the peoples will be able to come and uh, glorify him and serve him and sacrifice to him. Okay, we now want to answer a question from a listener, so we'll we'll pick up this series uh, in our next program. We have a question from a listener in Irwin, and the listener asks, does the soul go to sleep at the death of the body? Hmm, does the soul go to sleep? In other words, soul sleep when we die. All right, well, let's, let's first explore some verses from a passage of Scripture. And let's go to the New Testament, uh, Mark 5, where Jesus deals with a person who has died. So let's go to Mark chapter 5 to see if we can uh, answer this uh, listener from Irwin about soul sleep. So you have Matthew, and then the next book of the Gospels in the New Testament is Mark. And in Mark chapter 5... Let's look at verse 35. It says, Mark 5, 35, While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? The teacher, of course, being Jesus. 
Verse 36, But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, or the footnote says, only keep on believing. Verse 37, And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and the people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Verse 40, they began laughing at him, laughing at Jesus. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. So there's a, a number of things that we could uh, spend time talking about here. But the main thing was that people, the, the people in an earthly sense, believed that the girl had died and that they were uh, mourning because of her death and that the synagogue official evidently had some degree of faith because they wanted to call Jesus to see if he could um, talk, he could raise his daughter who had died. And if Jesus said, do not be afraid any longer, in verse 36, only keep on believing. And here's the point that people misunderstand about this, and we come up with this idea of soul sleep. When we talk about people who are asleep, we're talking about people who have died in faith, that belong to God, belong that are counted as righteous, that they are not dead waiting for the second death, uh, which we can talk about in another program, but they are awaiting a resurrection to eternal life, that it's a type of sleeping, if you will. But it's not soul sleeping in the sense that uh, people would have us believe. So let, let's think through this here just a moment, see if we can bring a a conclusion to this. If a person is asleep, it's only natural to assume that that person will wake up. I mean, that's the way we the world looks at it from a worldly perspective. If they're asleep, we assume that person will wake up. If a person has died, it's only natural to assume that that person will never wake up and will not live again. So Jesus here in this uh, this particular passage is making a point about faith in him as the Son of God. And the Son of God, of course, is the giver of life. We see that from John chapter 5, verse 20, 26, that even though a person has physically died, it is not a permanent death. At some point in the future, all the righteous of all time will be resurrected to a permanent, eternal life with God and the Lamb. And we know that there are several resurrections to eternal life. The, the first one, of course, uh, being Jesus, and then, of course, the church. And then there are others following that that we talk about in other episodes. But um, all, the unrighteous, all the unrighteous of all time will be resurrected as well, but they will stand at the great white throne to be judged for refusing to believe Jesus, to, ref, to uh, refuse the free gift of eternal life that Jesus offered them. 
And they will, according to Revelation 20, die a second death. Revelation 20. So let's go to Revelation 20 and see about this second death that uh, a Christian does not experience. So go to the very last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 20, and go to verse 11 through 15. And this is talking about the great white throne judgment um, that all the unbelievers of all time from Cain in the Old Testament in in, uh, Genesis the uh, the son of uh, Adam and Eve, Cain will be the first one to be standing there. And it says in Revelation chapter 20, starting verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. So we see that those of all time from, again, as I said, from Cain and the Old Testament and Genesis all the way to the great white throne judgment itself, which is at the end of the millennial kingdom, those people will die a second death. Uh, and, And that second death, of course, in the lake of fire is what's the eternal separation from the love of God. So there is really no soul sleep. Immediately at physical death, the righteous are in the presence of God. And that's in 2 Corinthians 5.8. Whereas the unrighteous go immediately to hell waiting for the great white throne judgment, which we, we read about in uh, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. So just because people say that... Um, well, Jesus said that person is asleep when he was referring to that person as uh, having died. The people described him as having died. That is not a soul sleep where we are waiting for some period of time uh, in a state of, um, well, first word comes to my mind is a state of flux. There's just nothing happening. It's kind of like a sleep. Well, that's not the case. Because we know that uh, when we are absent from the body, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians, when we're absent from the body, we are immediately present with the Lord, and that's our spirit form. And then at the rapture, our body is is brought in, um, brought to the spirit, and we are whole again, um, body, soul, and spirit, and we will be with the Lord forever. That there is no soul sleep. Remember, if we don't talk again. I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on today's Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.